0: Seem to have survived the elements pretty well. And I say that sarcastically because it's not that bad out. Uh, thank you, Jason. Thank you, Matt, for leading us in worship this morning. A sweet time in worship. And just so you guys know, Jason's such a blessing to our church. He's really got a shepherd's heart as he picks these songs, too. And I remember. Corresponding with him during the week and, and thinking about what songs he would lead us in this morning. And, and, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there knowing, of course, what we'll be seeing in, in the word this morning, but, but just seeing the connections there and preparing our hearts, uh, to hear from the Lord this morning. So we're going to be in James chapter one, finishing out chapter one, and uh, we're going to be in verses 19 through 27. Um, so we'll read together and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. So James chapter one. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this: to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Heavenly Father, as we come into Your presence, we acknowledge You uh, and Your Son and Your Spirit uh, as the Great I Am, uh, as this majestic God that we approach. And we pray that Your Word would speak to us this morning. Uh, I'm unworthy, uh, Lord, to uh, to stand here, uh, but but we all stand. Together, under your word, we pray that you would speak, that you would illuminate the meaning of, of these words to us this morning, and that you would also open our hearts to respond in faith and in obedience. And we pray that in all these things, you would be glorified through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. So I want to start by asking, why are we here? Aside from the obvious answers, well, it's Sunday. Um, this is what we do, right? We're Christians. We go to church on Sunday. But really, why are we here, especially right here at this portion of the worship when we you know, this is it's the entree, right? The sermon is usually the focal point. We sit, we hear from God's word. But why? And we can go through the motions here, but forget really what the purpose of this time is. How we hear the word is essential. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Last week, we talked about perseverance and trials Ricardo shared that that we can persevere in in knowledge of the fact that God has given us new life. He's given us new birth. He has regenerated us sovereignly by his own free initiative. And that that gives us the strength and the encouragement to persevere through trial. Um, Particularly in verse 12 of James where it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And then we are reminded um, later. In verse 18, of God's own will, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we, we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So this week, we want to take a step back and ask, well, what are the marks of this new life, right? If that's our hope in times of trial, the fact that we've been born again, well, what are the signs that we've been born again? What does that actually look like in our lives? How do I know that I'm born again, that I have this new life, that I've been regenerated by God? What is the true religion that characterizes somebody who's given new life from God? True religion. It's not just a brand of genes. Um, but but it's an important topic in our day and age because you've heard this critique, perhaps you've made it yourself, that the church is full of hypocrites. Uh, I was talking to somebody this week who made that same comment. Of course, uh, we also I, I pointed out to him in the course of the conversation, the world's full of hypocrites, too, right? There's there's hypocrites there and there's hypocrites here. There's hypocrites everywhere. The only difference is whether or not their sin is covered by the blood of Christ. But there's hypocrites inside and outside of the church and blaming Jesus or blaming organized religion or the church for hypocritical Christians is not unlike blaming the, the U.S. Treasury or the mint for the existence of counterfeit currency. Right? Just because there's something that's inauthentic out there doesn't devalue the real thing. And yet that's what people do. We use the fact that there's inauthentic Christians out there to allow us to alienate ourselves from truly following Christ. When I mean, it should have the opposite effect. It should make us want to see the real thing. So the main point this morning is that true religion receives the word of God humbly, reflects on the word of God honestly, and acts on the word of God heartily. Say that again, true religion receives the word of God humbly, reflects on the word of God honestly, and acts on the word of God heartily. So this new life that produces true religion starts with God's sovereign act of saving us through the gospel. Right? As we saw in verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. He he begat us. He brought us forth. He gave us new life through the word of truth, through hearing the gospel. So that causes us to ask, what sort of attitude should characterize me as I'm receiving this good news, as I'm hearing this good news of what Christ has done to save me? And so we look at verses 19 through 21 to start. And first we know that we are to receive the word of God humbly. So let's start by focusing on how true religion receives the word of God humbly. I'll reread those three verses there. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. I'll admit, I don't consult the King James Version too often. Matter of preference there, but I love how the King James renders uh, that phrase in verse 21 there, where in ESV it says rampant wickedness, but uh, the King James has superfluity of naughtiness. So your main teaching point today is don't indulge superfluity of naughtiness. Um, That goes for you too, Davion. Just kidding. (laughs) Uh, But uh, in verse 19 there, let's start and, and look at that. It says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak slow to anger. So in this, we should hear echoes of the character of God in Exodus 34, 6, where God reveals himself to Moses and he he uses his covenant name Yahweh or the Lord. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Right. So we're supposed to reflect this character of God. The general attitude that true believers should have is one of meekness and humility it almost goes without saying right christians should be kind meek patient and gentle but james is doing more here than just making a point about how we should be in general he's specifically connecting this back to how we hear the word because the very next thing he says in verse 21 is receive with meekness the implanted word and again we remember from verse 18 we're talking about how god of his own will brought us forth by the word of truth so specifically This attitude of being quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, should characterize how we receive the Word. We receive the Word of God humbly. Well, what's anger got to do with how we receive the Word of God? You can't humbly receive the Word of God while you're busy spouting off your own. I I asked at the beginning, why are we here? Why are we here this morning? And what attitude do we approach the time in God's Word with? We we can preach grace all day long, but if we're ungracious or we can we can try to buttonhole other people convincing them of the doctrines of grace. But if we're ungracious while we're doing that, we're not in a position to receive God's word. We can't receive God's word while we're angrily spouting off our own word and robust preaching in a church, which I think we would all value. We all want to have a strong pulpit ministry, but robust preaching does nothing for the life of a church without robust listening. We don't approach the Lord each week with hearts ready to receive and worship. It doesn't matter how 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 strong the ministry of whoever's standing here is, we need robust listening too. We should be slow to speak, quick to hear, slow to anger in verse nineteen. I think it's important that we realize that this isn't just saying be nice. And when I say be nice, we all know that that's sort of like the unstated Christian 11th commandment, right? Thou, thou shalt be nice. I'm not just talking about being a, a passive doormat, right? Uh, Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry and do not sin. So we can actually infer from that that there's such a thing as being angry without being sinful, right? There's such a thing as righteous indignation. Jesus was righteously angry, right when he turned over the temples, uh, the, the tables in the temple, rather, um, in his frustration. We know there's such a thing as good anger, but when it says slow to anger, we're talking about not having a a hair-trigger temper. Galatians 5:20 makes reference to people that engage in fits of anger. people who are given over to fits of anger often, frequently, habitually, these are the types of people that do not inherit the kingdom of God. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gives us a sense of how seriously we should take the problem of anger. Jesus says, you've heard it said of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus actually says that the same thing that's happening in your heart when you murder someone is the the same thing when you're angry and when you blow up on someone in a fit of rage. We have to take this seriously. and, And I just want to come before you. And admit that I am still growing and still being sanctified in this area. If there's, there's an area where I suffer and struggle, it's, it's this area. And I invite you as our church family to hold me accountable for that. Um, my wife also does a good job of that as well, but we also need the body of Christ. Um, but I, I, I've, I'm far from having arrived in this area. Uh, but, but I want to acknowledge that that I'm the, the last person that should be talking about this, and it convicts me as I, as I read it. But notice in verse 22, this is interesting. It says, "For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God." Now, why would James make that statement? Right? That that would be like, let, let, let's simplify it here. He's basically saying, sinning doesn't accomplish God's righteousness, and you kind of ask, "Well, why would it?" Right? It's a truism. It's true on its face. Why would James James make such an obvious statement? I think there's a couple things that we can see here. One one is that I want to point out the connection between the word that that we see in English here as righteousness and also what we see in other parts of our Bible translated justice, which in both the Hebrew and Greek languages are basically one and the same word. In fact, we see it in the English language, too, when we talk about we're being justified. It means to be declared righteous. So there's that overlap there in meaning. Uh, but the Greek term is dikaiosinon. Uh, but, it, but it means justice or righteousness depending on the context. And let's just think about this. What would it mean that the anger of man does not produce the justice of God? When I'm angry, and the, the reason anger Multiplies and, and it snowballs and it becomes impossible to control. is not because generally we're ignorant of the fact that this is wrong, right? When you're in a fit of rage, you know it's wrong. In fact, you, you think that it's wrong and then you feel convicted and you bury that deeper and then it comes out in more rage because you're also angry at yourself for being angry at the other person and for blowing up at that person. But you feel self justified, don't you? We, we feel self righteous in our anger. We feel justified in our anger. And so he's saying it doesn't produce the righteousness that God is after, the definition of justice that God would have. Anger is never just because, right? Nobody ever wakes up this morning and says, I think I'm going to blow up on my wife because it's Tuesday. Generally, people don't feel that way. It's not just because. It always starts with a just cause, rather. Right, I I feel justified. I feel like I have this genuine critique of, of, you know, maybe my my wife or my children or my husband, whoever this is in my life, they need to change in some area, and I need to be the one to show them that. We always feel justified. It happens in our family, right? We feel righteous, we feel vindicated. God wants us to know that that doesn't produce His righteous aims. It doesn't produce what He's after in our lives. Yeah, I, if, if I'm a husband, right, I might I might want my wife to submit to my headship, my leadership in the home, but demeaning and nagging her, and belittling her, passive aggressively or, or whatever, will not accomplish that. Even though it's theoretically a righteous aim. Or for the wives, you might want your husband to start spiritually leading you. You might want him to actually lead family worship, to read the Bible, to to, to To reach across the bed and hold your hand and pray with you at night. Or or just to get on a budget or whatever it is. But nagging and complaining and castigating him each night won't do that either. Anger doesn't produce the righteousness that God is after. When we use a harsh tone and biting sarcasm, passive-aggressive anger, right? A roll of the eyes, whatever it is. Or or maybe it's self-important moral lectures. Whatever form of anger you prefer in your home, it, it doesn't accomplish jolting Our wife, our husband, our kids into godly submission and righteousness. Happens in our family and marriages. It happens in the church as well. Remember, I asked, why are we here? I don't just mean like here, like Sunday, Lord's Day. I mean like, why are we at Faith Bible Fellowship? Right? Because we try. I think we've often been guilty of this. I've been guilty of this at other churches. We try to oil the wheels of what we think is the the God-ordained program for his church through murmuring, through complaining, through bitterness, through gossip when we don't get our way. When we see things going poorly, when we see things happening in the church, we resort to these angry human means to accomplish what we think is the righteousness of God, a, a healthy church that's being ran at least the way we think that God wants it to be run when we resort to these measures it doesn't accomplish the righteousness of god murmuring and complaining do not accomplish what god sees as just it happens in not just in the church it happens outside the walls of the church in the culture as well the whole movement that that revolves around social justice. And I realize that's a a complicated term and and some people use it in a really innocent sense and other people mean something very specific politically by it, uh, particularly on the left. But social justice that is often built on anger and rage, right? We're supposed to be outraged and social media uh, um, fuels this this constant outrage machine where I'm, I'm angry at the things that I'm seeing in the world. The same thing happens in politics in general. It's fueled by resentment, and it's often on social media. And so through our outrage, through our indignation, we try to bring the justice of God. We try to accomplish the righteousness of God. But we're short circuiting God's program. God's righteousness isn't accomplished. The kingdom doesn't come through our outrage or our intimidation in the home or our murmuring. In the church or the workplace or our school, we're short-circuiting the plan of God. It doesn't produce the righteousness of God, no matter how self-righteous we feel in our anger and frustration. So how do we receive the word of God humbly? Verse 21, receive with meekness the implanted word that is able to save your soul, right? So anger, when you get in this, this cycle of rage, anger only begets anger, but Grace, when you inject grace, that produces the righteousness of God. So that's this attitude of both receiving grace from God, humbly receiving his implanted word that's able to save your soul, and in giving the same grace to other people. We hear the gospel, we believe it, and then we give evidence of this new life through gracious, humble listening. So it's required that we receive the word of God humbly and meekly in order to be saved. Humble, open hearts to hear what God says, what he says to us in the gospel, of what Christ has done in his death and resurrection and reign to save sinners. But it's required that we also do more than just receive the word of God, isn't it? It's not enough to receive the word of God humbly. We also have to, and this is the second point, reflect on the word of God with honesty. Reflect on the word of God honestly. So look with me at verses 22 through the first half of verse 25, verse 25a. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres. Be no hearer who forgets, but doer who acts. He'll be blessed in his doing. Sitting in a garage does not make you a car. And sitting in church does not make you a Christian. Hearing the word of God does not give you heaven points. It simply doesn't. So we have to receive the word, that's good, and it starts there, but we have to also evaluate our lives in its exposing light. And notice this phrase here too. Be doers of the word, not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. It's self-deceit if we hear and disobey, if we hear and we fail to reflect. But others will see it. Others will see the hypocrisy. We'll be the last ones to find out. It doesn't say deceiving other people. And I'm not saying that, there, obviously there are false Christians who who fool everyone around them. And one day they, they turn from the faith and it's like, I, I never could have imagined that so-and-so was, was a false convert all along. But most of the time we can recognize hypocrisy, but the individual is self-deceived. Everyone else will know it, except you. Verses 23. If anyone, uh, it, it, sorry, verse um verse 23 if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face right so it's this picture of this man who looks in the mirror and then instantly forgets what he looked like and and I'm I'm looking at this and I'm preparing this this week and I'm thinking well that's that's kind of a strange analogy for us you know we live in the selfie age right wasn't that the word of the year a couple of years ago and generally we're pretty aware of our appearance we're pretty self-absorbed as a society I I'm not sure I understand this concept of somebody looking at a mirror and then forgetting instantly, um, but the idea is that we don't always have the most accurate self-perception. Uh, th- some of these images that circulate on social media sometime and it'll be like a grid and it'll be like, um, you know, three or four things. it will be like what, how my friends see me, how I see myself, how everybody else sees me, what I really look like. And, you know, it's like how I see myself. And it'll be like a picture of like Dwayne Johnson or something like that, flexing in the mirror. And then, you know, how I actually look, it'll be some, you know, pencil necked kind of Dilbert looking character. And that we're guilty of that thing often, right? We, we don't have the most accurate view of ourselves, not just physically, But also morally, we don't always have the most accurate perception of ourselves. So what what does it mean to look in the mirror of God's word and then turn away? I mean, how often do we have our devotions? We do our Christian duty and we, we pray for a few minutes. We read the Bible. We check the box. And then we're off to the same old habitual sin throughout that day, whether it's anger, gossip, pornography. Right? We've looked into the mirror theoretically, but not with an intent to change at all. It's just checking a box or sometimes we just redirect and we play the comparison game you know, like the pharisee that raises his hands in the temple and says well at least i'm not as bad as that publican over there and and we we do that we we say at least i'm not as bad as fill in the blank of course forgetting what jesus says in matthew 5 right that if you're angry it's like murder if you lust it's like adultery of the heart we forget how high the standard is we're we look into the Word. We don't intend to change. We have to ask ourselves, when we approach the Word of God, whether it's during the week or on Sunday morning, do we love the Bible? Are we inviting God through His Word to actually change our lives? Or are we just looking to be confirmed in our own opinions of whatever? When we come to church, are we, are we sitting there as, as uh, the guest speaker or whoever it is, is is preaching and just saying, like, okay, he... He quoted one Greek word, check. Oh, he did social justice, minus. Uh, like, what, what, is, what is going on in our hearts as we hear God's word in, in whatever form in which it's presented to us, right? But we have to have hearts that are ready to be changed. And look at this in verse 25 with me. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, stop right there. Why does, why does James call it the perfect law? And the law of liberty. What is that law? Is he talking about the Ten Commandments? Because I actually remember Israel being pretty scared when they received them. Like, don't don't speak to us anymore, God, or we're going to die, right? There was thunder and lightning on this mountain, smoke, flames, all those sorts of things. Well, there's a couple options here. Often in in Jewish conception, and and James is thoroughly Jewish. He's also the brother of Jesus, but he's thoroughly Jewish. And and usually in the Jewish, Jewish conception, the word law could just refer to teaching or it could refer to the whole word of God, including the law, but also including the, the prophets, the New Testament, all of it. In Psalm 19 we see this, and in John 10:34 Jesus says to the Jewish leaders, "In your law it's written, and he, he goes and he makes an argument from the Old Testament, but the quotation itself is actually from the book of Psalms. So he refers to the Psalms as the law. So it's it's possible that we have the whole word of God in view here. And I think that's the primary meaning that the whole word of God is in view here. The whole word of God, both testaments, the easy texts and the hard texts, the ones that I like and put on my coffee mugs and the ones that challenge me and keep me up at night. Those are all the perfect law, the law of liberty. But I don't think that the actual use of the word law here is accidental. In the New Covenant, In Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, God predicts that through the the work of Christ, we know looking back on this, that that this is going to happen, that he's going to take out the old, stony, rebellious hearts of his people. He's going to put a new heart in them. He's going to write his laws on their hearts. You have that same language in Jeremiah 31, 33, that he's going to write the law on the hearts of his people. Well, What law? Well, it's it's the, the fact that God's commands and his his will for our lives before we were in Christ, before we had new life in us, before we had been brought forth again by the word of truth, it was burdensome to us. It was oppressive. Oh, there's God and his law. I don't want to deal with that. But now, not because the law is any different, because we're changed, now we look at the same law of God, the same set of standards that God has for all humanity that's represented for us in Scripture here becomes a perfect law. A law of liberty, law of freedom. John Calvin talked about three uses of the law. One as a mirror. And we're talking about a mirror and forgetting what you look like, but but this is this is also called the um, the pedagogical use of the law. In other words, it's it's a mirror, it shows you your sinfulness. And it turns you to Christ. You look into God's law, you realize, oh my gosh, I have lusted. I've committed adultery in my heart. I have hated somebody. I'm a a murderer in my heart. And I've never loved God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength for a moment of my life. I am a sinner and I I turn to Christ. I know I need a savior. I need his blood to cover me. I need to fly from the wrath of God and go to Christ to be saved. So that's the first use of the law. The second law is it's civil use. It's civic use. It's, It's as a curb. Right. So whether you're saved or unsaved, whether you have a hard heart or a soft heart, God's law in general just tends to keep people from doing the wrong thing. Just in society. Right. The net effect of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder, is people realize like, yeah, yeah, that's probably a bad idea. And that's God's common grace over a culture. Right. Is that the law maintains some semblance of order and sanity in the world. But the third law, the third use of the law that Calvin outlines is as a guide. And this is what I believe James means when he refers to the law as being a perfect law and the law of liberty, it's a guide for the believer's life. Now that I'm in Christ, I'm not done with the law. I'm not done with commands. You know, people say, well, I love Jesus, but I hate organized religion. Well, this, I hate to admit it, this is organized religion in here. It becomes this joyful thing that I use to show me what God wants from me. It's the will of God written in Scripture that I fall in love with. He hasn't left me without a guide. He hasn't left me without a standard to live by. It's a guide for us, the third use of the law there. By the way, there's some theological systems that don't recognize this or that, that try to sever the believer from, from his relationship to the law. There's a theological system that's, that's new. It's less than 200 years old, but it's the, it's the orthodoxy across most of American Christianity, even though in history and in the world it's actually pretty rare. Um, that says that that because we're under grace, not under law, which is what Paul says um, in Romans chapter 6, says all, all the law, the Old Testament, everything that was strictly for Israel, right? it was strictly for the nation of Israel, has no bearing on the New Testament believer today. The New Testament believer is under grace, not under law. Well, okay, we are under grace. That is written in Romans 6, but if that's the case, and if it's just that simple and there's no more to it than that, what does the book of Jeremiah and the book of Hebrews, when it quotes from Jeremiah, mean when it says that the law is written on our hearts in the new covenant? What law is written on our hearts? The original audience would have understood that as as, as meaning well, the law of Moses in the Old Testament. Ever, all the standards that are written there, minus the cultural things, obviously cultural things. You know, there's some things that are limited to that day and age. But the general moral principles, all of it, is there for us, and it's written On our hearts. There's some other theological systems that try to propose a a middle way Um, for the nerds in the room. This would be new covenant theology or progressive covenantalism as opposed to dispensationalism. But these other systems propose a a middle way where the, the law now comes to us only by way of the moral imperatives of the New Testament. Right. The exact teachings of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Those are the only laws that we're bound to. Anything that's not explicitly mentioned in the Old Testament, we can kind of press away. And that's appealing. It's, a, it's appealing as we read and interpret scripture. There's a couple problems with it, though. One problem is that the New Testament frequently quotes, frequently, and, and, and not like, hey, guys, we know that's all done away with, but here's here's one of the laws that applies. It's not how the New Testament approaches it. The New Testament frequently makes use of obscure parts of the Old Testament law and assumes that the believers in the New Testament church, largely Gentiles, already knew it, or at least were becoming familiar with it. When Paul talks about whether or not pastors should be paid or or how much pastors should be paid, he, he quotes from an animal husbandry law. He says, don't muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. Right. So he he doesn't say, all right, I know the Old Testament is irrelevant, but humor me for a moment because I'm going to make a point. He just assumes they're already familiar with it. And he, even even the Gentile hears. So there's some problems here with severing our relationship from the law. James looks at it as the perfect law, as a law of liberty. How do we understand what Paul says in Romans 6:14? by the way, where it says that we're not under the law, but under grace And that's true. That is absolutely true. That is the gospel. Romans 7, 6, we died to the law. We are not under the law, but the question is, what does that mean, under the law? Does God still expect us to, for instance, love our neighbor as ourselves or thou shalt not murder? Yes, we're still under that in the sense that God expects that of anyone who bears his image. We're not under the law, though, as a covenant of works. So God's law is just his standard. Law says, hey, do this. A covenant of works says, do this and live. So a covenant of works attaches terms and conditions to it, rewards and punishment, blessings on obedience, sanctions on disobedience. We're not under the law in the sense that we're going to get kicked out of Palestine if we break it. Okay, We're not under the law in the sense that if, if I sin, you know, because I'm in Christ, I'm actually covered and I have a source of forgiveness at all times. And I don't have to be worried about it being immediately cut off. We're not under the law as a covenant of works that can be broken. But we are under it in the sense that it's our guide for living in God's world and in relation to God. And we walk by the Spirit, right? Not the law. We walk by the Spirit. But what does the Spirit use to make us more like Jesus? God's Word. He uses the Word of God. Old Testament and New Testament. Law and Gospel. Why do, I, why do I bring all of this up? Not just to nerd out. You can judge the state of your soul by your attitude towards the law of God. You can judge the state of your soul by your attitude towards the law of God. If you don't look at God's law and see it as this perfect law, this law of liberty, there's a good chance That the good news of Jesus has not wrecked you enough to the point where you realize, I want to live God's way. Not out of guilt, but out of gratitude for the grace that's been shown. In Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, I'm not going to read it, but the English word law is translated by the ESV 25 times. So I want to read a couple of those instances here and ask, "Do do I love my Bible? Do I love the law? Could these words that David says about the law be my words? Right. Could could I ever see myself saying any of these things? Psalm 19, verse one. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who walk in the law of the Lord. Verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. By the way, we just read in in Isaiah chapter two when Jeff was doing our scripture reading out of Zion shall go forth the law. Right. It's 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 intended to be this beautiful thing. Verse 29. Put away false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. Graciously teach me your law. Verse 34. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Verse 51. I do not turn away from your law. Verse 70. I delight in your law. Verse 72. This is a favorite. And this is challenging to us as affluent Americans. The law of your mouth is better to me than a thousand, sorry, than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Would you rather have the law of God or be rich materially? David says the law of God is better. Could we say the same thing as him? Verse 77, your law is my delight. 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 174, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. The law doesn't save us, but once Christ saves us, the law becomes a delight to us. Could these words be ours? Could we pray the way David prays? But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So notice, we look into the law and we persevere. We look into God's standards and we persevere, just like Ricardo shared with us last week from verse 12 in James 1. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So we're talking about that idea of perseverance there. Obeying God when life is hard. When life is hard. And when life is hard, do you ever feel joyless? Do you ever feel bored with God or discontent with life in general and the answer isn't always that we're doing something wrong but notice how he finishes verse 25 for the doer who acts he will be blessed in his doing it is a blessed thing to do god's word if we're feeling joyless or stagnant or anemic in our spiritual walk sometimes what we just need to do is obey because joy comes from obedience. Obeying, uh, obeying God's word does for us spiritually the same thing exercise does for us physically. Right? You can only consume and intake so much food until you feel just lethargic and miserable, right? I learned that over the holidays. <laughs> it was filled with copious amounts of cheese and it was like January 2nd. I'm just like, I don't like this. Why do I smell this? way? It's just weird, right? You, you can only consume so much until you need to, to have some output. And it's the same thing with God's word. We can only hear and listen and receive so many podcasts and sermons and radio programs and Christian music and, and all of that. And so we just have to do. We have to get out and obey God's word. And it brings joy. It brings vigor. It brings life. If you've been feeling stagnant, go do something. And so the third point is that we need to act on the word of God heartily. Not just receive humbly, not just reflect honestly, but act heartily. So again, with verse 25, heading into verse 27, all the way through verse 27, um, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the word, so, unstained from the world. And James at times can read kind of like a set of really convicting fortune cookies kind of all pasted onto one page. Um, it, it doesn't always read as connected as we would like it to read. But what's neat is that right here, you, know, you remember from your English composition class in high school or college, right? you have your thesis statement, your three points, and at the end you re- restate your thesis statement. Well, this is, this is the closest we get to kind of a thesis statement for the book. Um, Talking about the tongue, talking about religion that's pure and undefiled, orphans, widows. Um, Because then he unpacks each of these things. In verse um, 1 through 12 of chapter 3, he talks about taming the tongue. And, And we know that James talks a lot about the tongue. In chapter 2, the second half, verses 14 through 26, is where he talks about pure religion versus true religion or faith and works. A lot of us are familiar with what James says about faith and works and the relationship there. And in chapter 2, the beginning of it, up through uh, verse 13, as well as in chapter 3, starting in verse 13 all the way to chapter 5, verse 6, so basically the rest of the book after chapter 3, he talks about concern for the poor and the disenfranchised, and he talks about combating worldly thinking, worldliness, partiality in particular. So this is kind of his thesis statement for the rest of the book, which, which helps me as I approach this to realize how important this is for James, So when in verse 27 he says true religion that's undefiled and pure before God is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, we have to be careful that we don't understand this as saying that true religion only consists in visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. There's a lot of people who want to say something like, I I love your Jesus, but I don't like your Christians, right? Or, or, Or Christianity for me is really just about loving the poor, Um, All that doctrine stuff, that theology stuff, that I'm not interested in that. I'm just interested. Just love God, and that's all there is to it. And that, that sounds really enticing. But the problem is, James has already assumed a couple things. In verse 18, he's already assumed that you've been brought forth into a new life by the word of truth. You had to hear and believe the word of truth in order to start this new life. And then again, he makes reference in verse 21 to the implanted word that's able to save your souls. God's word gets planted and lodged deep in your soul, and it saves you when you believe in God's promise. So he's assuming that you already believe. He's assuming there's doctrine. He's not saying true religion is only helping the poor. He's not saying don't. it doesn't matter if you believe in Jesus or not. As long as you just live for the good of orphans and widows, you'll enter the kingdom. He's not saying that he's assuming you already believe that Jesus is the only way to be saved. But he's saying that the practical side of religion, the outworking of of true piety is visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. And he's talking about orphans and widows, but I think we all understand that he means more than that as well. Right. He's referring to all acts of compassion for neighbor. John Calvin rephrased it this way in his commentary on James. Uh, he said, it's as if God is saying here, let him who would be deemed religious prove himself to be such by self-denial and by mercy and benevolence towards his neighbors. So that's what we're saying, right? If you're truly religious, go love them, whoever the them is there, right? But in this case, it's some of the, the most vulnerable members of society then and now, orphans and widows. And he says, visit them in their affliction too. Not just feel guilty, text your ten dollar donation to the Red Cross, call it a day until the next time you feel convicted. He's not talking about that sort of you know guilt assuaging you know one time acts. He's saying visit them. That that implies being with them, doesn't it? Being present with people in their affliction, doing life with them, entering into life, into suffering on the same level as the vulnerable can take many different forms, but it. It it does require that we actually care. Act on the word of God honestly and care about the low in society. So let's continue to focus on verse 27 religion that's pure and undefiled before God, the Father. And we're reminded that this is grounded in God's heart as Father. We see it throughout the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 10. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. So God cares about those whom society doesn't care about. Psalm 68, five, father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God and his Holy habitation. And I love Psalm 113 because it contrasts the the height and the transcendence of God with how low he stoops to, to care for these people. He says, who is like the Lord, our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy out of the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. And so where is God with all the suffering and poverty in the world? Well, He's not just sitting on His throne in heaven. He's stooping down into the ash heap of humanity, taking the the woman having fertility issues and making her the mother of children. He's raising the poor and sitting them with princes. That is who... God is. A few notes on orphans and widows. In the state of Pennsylvania, of the 16,000 children who were in out-of-home care in some form, so that would be traditional foster care or kinship foster care, in 2016, just under 2,000 of them were adopted. But there were almost 3,000 of them 20% 20% waiting to be adopted. So 20% of the kids in foster care are ready to be adopted. Right? Parental rights have been terminated. They're just waiting for somebody to say, I will have you. Right? No more messy legal battles. Like the, easy, like the hard stuff is done. The easy stuff is now. You're ready to be adopted. 3,000 kids in Pennsylvania or in that state in, in, in 2016 didn't get adopted. It's according to the Department of Health and Human Services. By the way, that's that's been one of the the awesome things about just being a part of this church family that's ministered to Hannah and I in particular is that there's been excitement and energy um, in this congregation around foster care. Uh, Of course, we've fostered and adopted, uh, but it's been awesome. It's a a team effort. There's a support system there, and we're so grateful for that. But but also, the, the children in our own midst, even just in Pennsylvania, are still in need. And while we're talking about vulnerable children, in the state of Pennsylvania, there were 30,000 abortions in 2017. And over the last 10 years, there's about consistently an 800-abortion-per-year average in York County alone. Planned Parenthood is no more than five miles that way. It's It's in the historic district. If you've driven past it, you'll feel queasy. If you think about it, right next to the Jehovah's Witnesses, weirdly, it's also down the alley from a crisis pregnancy center, Human Life Services in York, which God is awesome. That building, the crisis pregnancy center used to be an abortion clinic. If you're you're from York or if you're familiar with the history uh, and and then they left town, the Christian crisis pregnancy care clinic took it over. And then it wasn't until years later, I think it was in the 90s or early 2000s that Planned Parenthood moved in across the alleyway about 800 abortions in York County alone each year and thousands of orphans waiting to be adopted who are already born a couple notes on widows i'm also grateful in our church that that we talk about the benevolence fund that we talk about benevolence ministry that matters there's a lot of churches where you don't always hear it discussed Um, but I'm I'm grateful that we make that a focus. I'm grateful that that we're a church that that, that, you know, I'm grateful for Jeff standing up here and praying for Elizabeth Sams and for her health and uh, and for other shut ins and people uh, just vulnerable people in our congregation. I'm grateful that they matter here. I'm grateful that we have deacons, that we have a biblical diaconate, that we have people that are focused on meeting the physical needs of our church body itself. Because that's how compassion works. It's not just like, all right, let's all go volunteer at the homeless shelter and and call it a day. It starts with your immediate family. Then it moves out into your church family. And then it moves out into the community and into the world. It starts at home. And whoever doesn't provide for members of his own home is worse than an unbeliever, right? That's what we see in 1 Timothy. It starts here and and moves out. And so I'm grateful that, that some of those things have been priorities, but I also confess, and I think we can all confess too, that we all fall really short in these areas, right? Of physical care and compassion for widows, for orphans, for the unborn, for the disenfranchised and marginalized in society. We all fall so far short. We need the blood of Jesus. We don't, we need to do something. We need to obey, well, we also just need the blood of Christ, right? same as, that, as as I read the section about anger earlier, and I admit that, that I 'm sinful in that area too. We just need the blood of Jesus, and we need to live unstained from the world, too. Finally. True religion is to keep oneself unstained from the world. And what does that mean? It doesn't mean you can't watch movies with a particular rating per se. it 's not about an arbitrary set of rules. It's not saying you can never, you know, enjoy an alcoholic beverage or, or get a tattoo. That's not necessarily what it's saying. What it's saying is similar to what James says in uh, chapter four, verse four, that friendship with the world is enmity with God, or what John says in First John two fifteen, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There's a holy detachment that we should have to this fleeting physical order. And so, when we receive new life from God through His Word, through the good news preached to us, God regenerates us sovereignly and and we're brought from death to life. We're dead in sin, now we're alive in Christ, born again. What does it mean? It produces true religion and true religion receives the Word of God humbly reflects on the Word of God honestly and acts on the Word of God heartily. So just a couple of questions to help us think through application as we close. The first is, are you receiving the Word of God humbly? Or is there too much angst and clamor and murmuring and anger in your life that it's actually drowning out God's Word and making you in a position where you're unable to receive it humbly? We need the blood of Christ to to both cover our rage, our irritability, our perpetual issues with anger and frustration with others, but also to change us. Do we receive the word of God humbly? Second, do we reflect on the word of God with honesty? Do we love the Bible? Do we come to church ready to hear and learn and also be convicted and change when we need to? Do we love God's law? Is it a delight to us? Or are we, you know, kind of red letter only and we don't like the rest of it? Do we love all of God's word? Third, do we act heartily on what we read? Are we drawn to those who are who are afflicted, who are disenfranchised, who are the low in society, the way the Father loves to defend them and bless them? And we have to confess our guilt in this area, too, and and ask Christ to cover it and and also to change us. And finally, four, all of this, these marks of true religion, do you have them? Is there new life in you? Are you born again? Does this sound like you? you know, we have good days and bad days, but overall, is this your trajectory of life? Are you truly converted? Or do you need to start over and realize, I have to humbly receive the implanted word that is able to save my soul? Do I have this fruit of life change? Or does my life look honestly nothing like this? And I have to start by going back and hearing God's word that Jesus died for sinners. He rose. He reigns as King and Lord and Judge. And if we repent and put our trust in Him, He's able to save us. Because Jesus is not a halfway Savior. He doesn't just save you but then not change you. He doesn't save you part way. Don't let hypocrisy in your life or in the church or others keep you from him because he saves and he gives grace and mercy, but he also changes us so that we bear these marks of true religion. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word which stirs us, it convicts us, it it wakes us from our slumber. Lord, we um, we confess that we fall short in many of these areas. We are often slow to listen and quick to speak and quick to anger. We do not allow ourselves to, to consistently practice compassion towards those in need, um, not just out there in the world and Uh, the city, but also in our own families and in our own congregation. We need, Lord, your word to to bear its fruit in us. Lord Jesus, we confess our sin to you. We thank you that you died for sinners. We thank you that you rose. We thank you that you can wash away our guilt in these areas. And you can help us to begin to obey imperfectly. Never be perfect, Lord in this life, but but to do so heartily, to do so out of gratitude. So Lord, we ask that you would do that in our lives, our marriages, our, our church, our families, and in our community. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen.